Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 2023 episode of Astrochem Coffee, brought to you by Astrochemistry Discussions. I'm your host, Brett McGuire, and I'm joined today by co-host, Elsa Cook, Assistant Professor of Chemistry at the University of British Columbia. How's it going, Elsa? It's going great. Thanks for asking. Absolutely. So today's episode is coming to you from a very special location. We're recording live on site at the Green Bank Observatory, located in the town of Green Bank, West Virginia. Now, if you don't know Green Bank, it's a truly remarkable location for several reasons. First, we're nestled in the Monongahela National Forest, high in the Appalachian Mountains and smack dab in the middle of the National Radio Quiet Zone. This is a federally protected area where all radio emissions are tightly regulated and controlled, allowing for substantially reduced radio frequency interference and more sensitive radio observations. There is no Wi-Fi here, no cell towers, no Bluetooth, and all the microwave ovens are locked away in their own personal Faraday cages. It is a truly magical place to live and visit, but also for radio astronomy in general, and of course astrochemistry in particular. Two of the telescopes on the site, the now decommissioned NRAO 140-foot telescope and the 100-meter Green Bank telescope. Combined, these two facilities have led to the detection of nearly 50 new molecules in the interstellar medium. The history of astrochemistry is inextricably linked with Green Bank, and you can really feel it while walking around the site. We'll be also taking our usual whirlwind tour of what's been happening in the astrochemical literature this last month in the grab-and-go. A deeper look at two exciting recent interstellar detections, that of the methyl cation, C3H+, and the glycine isomer, glycoamide, with the double shot, and then a peek into the percolator to see what's bubbling up from the history books. Finally, we'll take a look at the chalkboard to see what's on the horizon for meetings and events. But first, let me tell you that today's Cup of Joe is, and this is the gods or whatever honest truth here, folks, my absolute favorite coffee in the world, a delicious mug of black coffee from the Green Bank Cafeteria. I am told it's a Folgers medium roast prepared from a liquid concentrate. It is simply divine, perfectly smooth, roasty flavors with no hard edges, very little acidity, and none of those floral or fruity notes that so often ruin an otherwise decent cup. I don't know if it's the coffee itself, the preparation, or even the mineral-rich water of Greenbank that makes this brew so special, but it's truly a delight. There are many excellent reasons to visit Greenbank, but for me, this cup of coffee is what I look forward to most each time. Alright, this is the grab and go, because sometimes you just can't do more than skim the menu. This was an absolute banger of a month for astrochemistry, and even being somewhat selective, we've still got a ton of papers to put on your radar. So I'm going to ask Elsa to help me here as we rapid fire take you through the list to see what's been happening. Number one, PDRs for all, four, an embarrassment of riches, aromatic infrared bands in the Orion Bar, by Chown et al. on the archive to appear in A&A. This paper presents JWST near-spec and MIRI MRS observations of the Orion Bar from the JWST Early Release Science Program, PDRs for All. The presentation focuses on the aromatic infrared bands, which dominate photodissociation regions like the Orion Bar. The authors discuss the results from several locations within the source in the context of how those aromatic infrared bands reveal the photochemical evolution of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons under the variety of UV field conditions present in the source. Number two, PDRs for all. Number two, JWST's NIR and MIDIR imaging view of the Orion Nebula by Habar et al. on the archive. So this paper also presents JWST observations of the Orion Nebula from the PDRs for all program, this time focusing on the precise transition regions between the ionization front, dissociation front, and molecular cloud along the PDR. The observations show that the cloud borders are what the authors describe as hyperstructured, with sharp edges and density fronts. Number three, gas phase elemental abundances in molecular clouds, GEMS. Number nine, deuterated compounds of H2S in starless cores, by Rodriguez Barres et al. on the archive to appear in A and A. H2S is thought to be the main sulfur reservoir in interstellar ices, and thus understanding its chemistry is critical to understanding the long-standing missing sulfur problem. 
This paper presents a study of 19 starless cores, aiming at examining the deuteration patterns of H2S as a means of understanding its formation conditions. Detections are found in several of these sources, and the authors posit a number of implications related to the formation conditions of H2S in those sources relative to other chemical species in the same locations. Number four, combined model for 15N13C and spin state chemistry in molecular clouds by Sapila et al. on the archive to appear in ANA. This work presents a new gas grain chemical model for both 15N and 13C isotopic chemistry coupled with a time-dependent description of spin state chemistry. Both new reactions and updated rate constants of previously included reactions are incorporated. The authors find that the 13C to 12C ratio can vary significantly from the assumed elemental ratio, both between species and with time, whereas the 14N to 15N ratios seem to remain relatively constant. They suggest that there are likely to be gradients in the isotopic abundances across pre-stellar sources, and caution that as a result, various isotopic forms for, of a given molecule might not necessarily trace the same gas layers. Number five, hyperfine collisional excitation of ammonia by molecular hydrogen by Leroux et al. on the archive. Observations of ammonia lines are often used to derive physical conditions of interstellar sources. The hyperfine resolved spectra often display non-thermal intensity ratios, the correct interpretation of which requires highly accurate collisional rate coefficients with the dominant collider, in this case molecular hydrogen. This paper presents the first calculations using a quantum scattering close coupling calculation approach. The resulting rate constants up to J equals 4 and temperatures of 100 Kelvin are substantially different from st the traditional statistical approach. The impact of these new rates on the interpretation of spectra are then demonstrated. Possible gas phase synthesis of neutral melanonitrile C3H2N2 and isocyanoacetonitrile NCCH2NC under the upper atmospheric conditions of Titan. Ramal Olmedo et al. in ACS Earth and Space Chemistry. This study focuses on melanonitrile, a highly re reactive molecule, for it to be key to the synthesis of heterocyclic compounds and of significant interest to prebiotic chemistry. While not yet detected in the interstellar medium, it has been proposed that the conditions in the upper in the atmosphere of Titan may be conducive to its formation there. This paper presents a computational investigation of the potential reaction pathways, proposing dozens of mechanisms with associated energetic, thermodynamic, and kinetics calculations. The results also indicate that an additional attractive target molecule may be isocyanoacetonitrile. Number seven, Deep Search for Molecular Oxygen in TW Hydra by Williams et al. on the archive to appear in the Astrophysical Journal. In planet-forming disks, there is a problem of missing oxygen, as the gas phase, CO, and H2O values are substantially below those measured for those species in the interstellar medium. One proposal is that gas phase molecular oxygen may be the dominant carrier in these regions. This paper presents a deep search for emission from the 234 GHz transition of 16O-18O molecular oxygen in the TW Hydra disk using state-of-the-art matched filtering approaches. No detection is made, and the upper limits are two to three orders of magnitude below the solar oxygen abundance. The authors conclude that, at least in TW Hydra, molecular oxygen is not a dominant oxygen reservoir. Protoplanetary Disk Chemistry number 8 by Erberg et al. on the archive to appear in Annual Reviews of Astronomy and Astrophysics. This is an extensive review article focused on the chemistry of protoplanetary disks. The paper examines the question of disk chemical composition, highlighting the importance of both inheritance and in-situ chemistry. The authors also explore the various explanations for why O, C, N, and H elemental ratios so often deviate from stellar values. Finally, they examine the challenges presented to modeling the complex interactions between molecular species and the physical environment and dynamical evolution of these sources, but also the opportunities the often extreme sensitivity of these interactions brings to using these species as powerful observational tools. Number nine, understanding molecular abundances in star-forming regions using interpretable machine learning by Hale et al. on the archive to appear in Munras. This paper presents the results of a study using an interpretable machine learning technique to attempt to understand the relationship between physical input parameters in astrochemical models and the output molecular abundances. 
They report a number of example results exploring, for example, the role of metallicity on the gas phase abundance of water and CO, the efficacy of using the HCN to HNC ratio as a thermometer, and the ability of the HCN to CS ratio to effectively trace gas density. The strengths and limitations of each are discussed in the context of the machine learning results. Number 10, Astrochemical Modeling of the Propagial Radical Chemistry in TMC1 by Byrne et al. On the archive to appear in AppJ. Astrochemical models have so far been unable to reproduce the abundances of cyclic and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon species recently detected in cold, dark clouds. It has been posited that the propagial radical recently detected in the same source as these aromatic species and its shockingly high abundance is a critical precursor. This work presents an update to chemical models attempting to better reproduce the propagial radical, which is also substantially underproduced. The addition of new reaction pathways and revision of a number of rates of existing pathways results in an increase in better match of the propagial abundance to observations. But it remains substantially underproduced. We comment on the implications of this on our understanding of interstellar aromatic chemistry, paying particular attention to the potential role of resonance stabilized radicals in their formation. Number 11, a JWST inventory of protoplanetary disk ices, the edge on protoplanetary disk HH48 Northeast, seen with the Ice Age ERS program by Sturm et al. on the archive to appear in ANA. This paper presents JWST near-spec observations of the edge-on protoplanetary disk HH48 Northeast, revealing spatially resolved absorption of water, carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, ammonia, OCN- and OCS ices, as well as the first detection of 13 carbon dioxide ice in a protoplanetary disk. Physical and radiative transfer models are proposed to explain the spatial distributions and spectra observed. The authors show that the 13 CO2 observations allow a more accurate determination of the 12 CO2 column density, the direct signature of which is heavily optically thick. Further, carbon monoxide ice is observed at surprising heights within the disk, a phenomenon the authors suggest is indicative of that carbon monoxide being trapped in water and carbon dioxide ices to much warmer temperatures than normally assumed. Number 12, kinetic study of the gas phase reaction between atomic carbon and acetone, low temperature rate constants, and hydrogen atom product, product yields. Hickson et al. on the archive to appear in ACS Earth and Space Chemistry. This paper presents a combined experimental and computational study examining the reaction between carbon triplet P and acetone in the gas phase. Experimental measurements are made in a continuous flow supersonic reactor over the range of 50 to 296 Kelvin. The resulting derived rate constants are large and have only a weak temperature dependence in agreement with the expected variolous nature of the reaction. The authors note that this reaction is not currently included in most astrochemical networks and offer suggested rate constants, indicating that the inclusion of this efficient reaction can result in a dramatic decrease in the modeled acetone abundances, especially at early and intermediate cloud ages. Number 13, a theoretical approach to the complex chemical evolution of phosphorus in the interstellar medium by Fernandez Ruz et al. on the archive to appear in AppJ. Phosphorus is a critical element for life and has gained significant attention in recent years due to the increasing detections of PO and PN in interstellar environments. As these species are thought to be the primary reservoirs of phosphorus in these locations, this paper makes an attempt to model their reaction chemistry. The authors conclude that the formation of PO and PN are governed largely by just a few critical reactions, and claim that these reactions fully explain the observed relationships between PO and PN in a variety of interstellar sources. Number 14, the PCA filtering method for an unbiased spectral survey of complex organic molecules, or COMS, by Yunan Lee on the archive. This paper presents a new method for increasing the signal-to-noise ratio of molecular spectra by using principal component analyses and correcting for non-Gaussian line profiles caused by kinematics. The authors test their method on OMA-BAN-SIX survey data of the V883-O-RIM and, de and demonstrate an enhancement in signal-to-noise ratios by a factor of about 2. 
Number 15, determination of the branching ratio of methanol plus OH reaction on water ice surfaces at 10 Kelvin by Ishibashi et al. on the archive to appear in APCHE. The CH3O and CH2OH radicals are widely thought to be critical intermediates in complex molecule formation in the ISM, with each leading to a substantially different set of products. Both radicals can form from the reaction of abundant methanol and OH in intercellular ices, but the branching ratio of this reaction was not previously well understood. This paper presents an experimental investigation of this branching ratio at 10 Kelvin, showing that CH3O is formed at a factor of 4.3 to 1 relative to CH2OH. They further demonstrate that CH3O is able to diffuse and further react even at 10 Kelvin. Both results are likely to have a substantial impact on models of complex molecule formation. Number 16, Small Molecules Big Impact, A Tale of Hydrides Past, Present, and Future, by Jacob on the Archive, to appear in Astrophysics and Space Sciences. This review focuses on the chemistry of hydrides, defined as a heavy element covalently bonded to one or more hydrogen atoms in the interstellar medium. A history of hydride molecule observations is presented, and then much of the paper is focused on the utility of observations of the carbon hydrides, namely CH and CH2. A discussion of the utility of CH in tracing bulk molecular hydrogen is presented, for example, as well as an overview of recent advances in our ability to accurately model the excitation and emission. There is then a discussion of the role of isotopic analyses of carbon hydrides. Finally, a broader overview of current and future hydride research is presented. Number 17, low-temperature gas phase formation of methanamine, CH2NH, the simplest imine under single collision conditions, by Yang et al. in J. Phys. Chem. Letters. Methanamine, CH2NH, is thought to be a key building block of biomolecules, such as amino acids and nucleobases. Despite being known in numerous intercellular environments, its formation pathways are not well understood, hampering our ability to use it as an effective probe of potential prebiotic chemistry. This paper presents an experimental investigation of the formation of this species through single collision reactions of deuterated methylidine, CD, and ammonia. The use of a deuterated precursor allows substantial insight into the underlying mechanism, and the author suggests that the resulting deuterated methanamine may be a powerful probe of gas phase deuterium enrichment if it can be observed in interstellar space. Number 18, collisional excitation of methyl isocyanide by helium atoms, rate coefficients, and isomerism effects by Ben Khalifa et al. on the archive to appear on Munres. Methyl cyanide CH3Cn is a widely used probe of temperature in interstellar environments, and the ratio of its abundance to that of its isomer methyl isocyanide CH3Nc provides valuable insight into physical conditions. These inferences rely entirely, however, upon the ability to accurately derive column densities of these species, which in turn requires highly accurate collisional excitation rates for the very frequent times when these species are not in thermal equilibrium with the environment. This paper presents calculations of these rates for the collision of these molecules with helium from 5 to 100 Kelvin, including the first 77 and 66 rotational states of CH3Cn and CH3Nc respectively. The effects of these new and revised rate coefficients on interpretations are explored through radiative transfer calculations of several detected lines of each species. And finally, number 19, explaining the chemical inventory of Orion KL through machine learning by Scalati et al. on the archive to appear in AppJ. Here to tell you about this work is the first author, Haley Scalati, a graduate student in chemistry at the University of Virginia. In 2021, Lee and co-workers demonstrated that a machine learning approach using simple regression models could accurately reproduce the abundances of the chemical inventory of the TMC1 molecular cloud. Here we present an extension of that work in terms of chemical complexity through the application of a new source, the high-mass star-forming region Orion KL. Although the region presents multiple chemically and kinematically distinct regions, we show that a machine learning approach using similar regression models is still able to accurately reproduce the column densities of the molecules in these regions as measured in the Herschel Hexos Large Program Astrochemical Line Survey. And folks, we'd be really delighted to feature a listener recording each month in the grab and go. Just send us an MP3 file of your four to six sentence summary of your article within a few days of it posting to the archive. 
You can email the file to us directly at coffee.astrochem.net. And that's your grab and go for the month. We can, of course, only juggle so many cups. For a more complete list of papers, we recommend checking out the amazing lists maintained by David Woon at theastrochemist.org and the Astrochemical Newsletter. You can find links to these websites as well as each of the papers in this month's grab and go on our website at coffee.astrochem.net. Have a paper you think we should include in next month's edition? Shoot us an email with a link to the paper and a four to six sentence summary at coffee.astrochem.net. And now, a word from our sponsors. As always, this week's episode is brought to you by our friends at your neighborhood Stardugs, who all month long are celebrating the successful return of samples from asteroid Bennu, back to Earth by the OSIRIS-REx mission. Stop on by and try one of their Raspberoids, a deliciously short, crumbly cookie exterior with a sweet raspberry and lemon filling that brings just enough zing. They're great, paired with a steaming cup of Earl Grey tea served up on one of their collectible mugs, showcasing real scenes from the dramatic touchdown of Osiris Rex on Bennu. Collect all 25 beautiful ceramic masterpieces and line them up in a row for a stirring frame-by-frame recreation of the event. Don't miss out, they're available for a limited time only. On this week's Double Shot, we have two exciting papers. First up, we're going to take a look at a paper entitled First Glycine Isomer Detected in the Interstellar Medium, Glycolamid, NH2COCH2OH, by Victor Rivia and colleagues, published in the Astrophysical Journal Letters, Volume 953, page L20. The paper begins its introduction by outlining why glycine, the simplest amino acid, is a molecule of such keen astrophysical interest. It highlights that glycine has been found in meteoritic samples for decades, and that it has also been detected in both asteroids and comets. This suggests a possible interstellar origin for glycine, and other amino acids, motivating observational searches. The paper then highlights some laboratory work demonstrating that glycine can be synthesized under interstellar conditions, but goes on to list numerous efforts to detect glycine in space, all of which have failed. They then suggest that perhaps this is an indication that glycine is not the most abundant isomer in the C2H5O2N family. They highlight that searches for two lower energy isomers, N-methylcarbamic acid and methylcarbamate, have been unsuccessful, the former due to a lack of spectroscopic data and the latter due to non-detections. Two higher energy isomers, hydroxyacetamide and glycolamide, do have spectroscopic data and are searched for here. In the observation section, the authors detail how the sensitivity of their spectral line survey of G plus 0.693 minus 0.027, the chemically rich molecular cloud located in Sagittarius B2, has been dramatically improved since their prior publications. They describe the Q-band, that's 31 to 50 gigahertz, observations obtained with the ultra-broadband receiver on the Yebas 40-meter telescope, acquired with a spectral resolution of 38 kilohertz. The telescope beam varied from 35 to 55 arc seconds across the band. The final spectra were smoothed to 256 kilohertz resolution, corresponding to between 1.5 and 2.5 kilometers per second, which is enough to characterize the lines that have typical widths between 15 and 20 kilometers per second. The ultimate noise level achieved was between 0.25 and 0.9 millikelvin. They also use the ERM 30-meter telescope to conduct line surveys in the 3 and 2-millimeter regions, achieving noise levels of 0.5 to 2.5 millikelvin at similar velocity resolutions, but with a beam size of about half those of the EVAS observations. The analysis and results section details the spectroscopic data used to search for methylcarbamate, two conformers of glycine, two conformers of glycolamide, and one of hydroxyacetamide. They report a detection of the syn conformer of glycolamide and describe an LTE fit to the emission using the MADCUBA software package. Their figure 1 shows a number of spectral windows where glycolamide is expected to have strong transitions. There are a number of strong high signal-to-noise signals that correspond well to the expected position and intensity of glycolamide transitions, and a number more that are partially blended with emission from other species, which have also been fit and modeled. 
No, obviously missing transitions or signals that are substantially over or under predicted are shown. They report non-detections and derive upper limits for all the other species, including glycine. They begin their discussion section by outlining why it is reasonable for a glycolamid to be detected before glycine, despite it being a higher energy isomer and with a smaller dipole moment than glycine. They reference the fact that, traditionally, the relative energies of isomers have been used to predict detectabilities and abundances using what has been termed the minimum energy principle. Yet they go on to show that over the last decade in particular, numerous studies have shown that the thermodynamic control implied by the minimum energy principle is not in fact universally, or perhaps even predominantly, the mechanism by which these properties are determined. Specific examples include the C3H2O and C2H4O isomeric families, which are found to defy thermodynamic ratio predictions. They then demonstrate that, given the observed upper limits of the other isomers, these relative abundances certainly cannot be thermodynamically controlled. They then discuss some qualitative reasons why glycine was not detected. One factor they highlight is the scarcity of detections from molecules containing a carboxyl group, that's a C double bond OOH group, with the only detections being formic acid, acetic acid, and carbonic acid. They further make predictions on glycine abundances by looking at pairs of molecules where an amine group has replaced a hydrogen atom, specifically glycolaldehyde, that's HCOCH2OH, compared to glycolamid, NH2COCH2OH, and then again with ethanol, CH3CH2OH, compared to ethanolamine, NH2CH2CH2OH. The ratios are not consistent with the glycolaldehyde to glycolamide ratio being 15 and the ethanol to ethanolamine ratio being 40. Still, applying these ratios to acetic acid and glycine yields an expected glycine column substantially below the upper limit derived from these observations, suggesting that glycine will continue to be a challenge to detect. The paper then finishes with a discussion of the potential formation pathways for glycolamide in space. The chemistry in G plus 0.693 minus 0.027 is dominated by shocks, suggesting that grain surface pathways are likely to dominate, especially given the lack of gas phase reaction pathways proposed for glycolamide in the literature. They suggest that based on structural similarities, the chemistry of glycolamide might be similar to that of acetamide. They propose an analogous reaction network for glycolamide and show it visually in their figure 3. They then look at molecular abundance ratios between a variety of glycolamid precursor species, both in G plus 0.693 and in a variety of other sources in which upper limits to glycolamid have been established. On the basis of these comparisons, they suggest that the enhanced cosmic ray ionization rate present in G plus 0.693 minus 0.027 might contribute to driving favorable glycolamid formation pathways relative to other sources. Next up, we'll be taking a look at formation of the methyl cation by photochemistry in a protoplanetary disk by Bernie and colleagues, published in Nature, volume 621, page 56. The paper begins by noting that it has been long proposed that much of interstellar chemistry is initiated by the methyl cation, CH3+. Yet to date, no detection of the molecule has been made outside the solar system. The paper will describe a detection of CH3+, in the protoplanetary disk, D203506, located in the Orion star-forming region, using JWST. In the introduction, the authors begin by describing the observations themselves, highlighting that these were part of the PDRs for All early release science program, and that the disk itself is located within the Orion Bar PDR region. Only 0.25 parsecs from the trapezium stars, which are the UV-illuminating source for the PDR. This disk is seen nearly edge-on, and their figure one shows a number of integrated intensity images from the JWST observations of the emission observed from a number of species, including molecular hydrogen, Fe+, CH+, and CH3+. The authors claim that this emission arises from a hot as much as 1,000 Kelvin and dense wind produced by photoevaporation of the disk itself by the illuminating UV radiation from the trapezium stars. The temperature is derived using pure rotational lines of molecular hydrogen captured by 
the Mary MRS instrument on JWST. They describe the analysis in their methods section and provide a rotational diagram of the molecular hydrogen emission in their extended data figure three. It shows a remarkably linear trend across eight indicated transitions that appear well fit to a temperature of 923 Kelvin with an error of 48 Kelvin. The derived hydrogen column density is about eight times 10 to the 19 per square centimeter. The paper then goes on to describe how after identifying and removing the emission from both atomic and molecular hydrogen, a series of strong emission lines in the range of 6.5 to 8 microns. The emission is shown in figure one to only arise from the disk and to be co-spatial with the hydrogen and CH plus emission. The figure two shows a zoom in on the series of lines, which the paper describes as corresponding to the expected pattern for the row vibrational transitions. The figure shows a considerable number of spectrally resolved lines. The authors point out that the correspondence between the new two, this is the out-of-plane umbrella motion bending mode of CH3+, and the new four, so the in-plane bending mode of CH3+, with the observed features is striking, although only the band positions, not the resolved row vibrational lines, are known from experiment. Thus, the paper then moves into attempting to both rule out other potential molecular carriers and to apply quantum chemical calculations to the problem. First, as they detail in their methods section, the lack of any unassigned lines in the range of 5.2 to 6.2 micron range, they take as evidence that there are no small molecules containing CO or CN vibrations contributing to the spectra, as those modes would arise in this region. The lack of any strong unassigned emission at longer wavelengths is then taken as evidence that there are no larger molecules as well, as they would typically show lower frequency modes in those regions. The authors then extensively test small molecules with known spectra in databases such as HITRAN and fail to find any convincing match. The paper then offers two additional points of evidence suggesting an assignment to CH3 plus is supported. First, the spectral pattern is typically of the spin statistics expected for three equivalent hydrogen nuclei in CH3+. Second, they demonstrate that the row vibrationally resolved spectra can then be satisfactorily simulated using spectroscopic constants calculated using quantum chemistry. They detail their calculations in the methods section and use PGOFER to simulate the spectra. A simulation of their best agreement is shown in figure three below the observational data. It shows remarkably good, albeit qualitative, agreement with the observations, with similar relative intensities, line positions, and line densities. They were not, however, able to assign quantum numbers to any of the transitions. A final piece of evidence comes from observations with the JWST near-spec instrument near 3 microns. The new 3-band of CH3 plus has been measured at high resolution in this region, although signals are expected to be quite weak in the JWST data. A small number of lines are tentatively detected and in good agreement with the laboratory data. Based on this slate of evidence, the authors claim that CH3 plus is the best candidate to explain the observations. The paper then concludes with a discussion of the chemistry of CH3 plus in the source. In lower temperature sources and with standard UV radiation fields, the typical formation pathways through subsequent radiative associations, starting with C+, with molecular hydrogen, are expected to be far too slow to be efficient. The authors suggest instead that high temperatures and enhanced radiation environments of the source lead to the suprathermal excitation of H2. The excited H2 can then react efficiently with C+, yielding, through subsequent reactions, large quantities of CH3+. Their methods section examines this quantitatively, finding that there is a wide range of physical conditions, and especially UV enhancement, that permit, permits the efficient formation of CH3+, which can subsequently react to form more complex molecules. They conclude, then, that much gas phase organic chemistry is initiated via CH3+, in UV-enhanced regions. Finally, they comment on the marked difference in chemistry observed between the chemistry in the UV-enhanced disk described here and that seen in more typical disk sources. Folks, we like to have fun with our advertisement breaks. For those not benefiting from the live video feed, 
Brett just made dramatic air quotes there, which is super effective in an audio-only medium like a podcast. Anyway, since we're here in Green Bank recording this week, we wanted to take a minute to let you know that if you haven't visited Green Bank or used their telescopes before, we can't stress enough how strongly you should consider doing both. That's right. The GBT receives a substantial amount of its funding from the National Science Foundation. And as a result, a huge portion of the available time is open skies. That means that anyone can apply for the same pool of time on the telescope with equal opportunity regardless of their affiliation or nationality. There's no charge for telescope time, and the observatory regularly runs training workshops to get new users up to speed on how to write observing scripts, execute observations, and reduce their data. Users also then become certified to run the telescope remotely, making it even easier to get your observations done. The GBO scientific staff is always willing to help answer technical questions and proposal preparation. And if you're awarded time, you're assigned a dedicated project friend to help with observing preparation and data reduction as well. Finally, we want to highlight that anyone can be a PI on one of these proposals, even undergraduate and graduate students. In fact, proposals that are directly in support of a graduate student thesis project historically have received a small boost in scheduling on the telescope. If you're at all interested in observing with the GBT but don't know where to start or have questions, the GBT Help Desk is a great place to start. We'll put a link in the show notes and on our website. Or you can reach out to your colleagues who use the GBT, like Brett and me, and we'll be happy to help or find the right person to talk to. That's right. And I want to highlight two other awesome aspects of Green Bank. First, if you're a teacher or otherwise working with students who just want some basic experience working with a real radio telescope, the GBO also maintains a 20-meter telescope that is fully remote operable and designed specifically for educational applications. To tell us a little bit more about that, here's Dr. Will Armentrout, the GBO scientist who runs the facility. All right, thanks for joining us, Will. Can you give us a little introduction? Who are you? What do you do around uh, Green Bank? And uh, what's your interest in astrochemistry? Sure. Thanks, Brett. Uh, so my name is Will Armentrout. I'm a scientist here at the Green Bank Observatory. I study mostly high-mass star formation and galactic structure. So we use stars anywhere from 10 to 100 times the mass of the sun to probe the spiral arms of the Milky Way because they glow so brightly and you can see them the entire way around the galaxy. Here in Green Bank, I also cover all of our student programs and astronomer training, and I'm in charge of our 20-meter telescope. So as far as astrochemistry goes, I study molecular gas reservoirs around forming stars, trying to be able to tell if star formation might be different in different parts of the Milky Way, whether that's the sun, the center of the galaxy, the far outer edge of the galactic disk, to try to trace efficiencies of um, star formation and to see, again, if there are any chemical differences there. And, and you use the Green Bank Telescope to do this research? Yeah, that's right. We use the Green Bank Telescope, the Very Large Array, uh, the Australia Telescope Compact Array, and some other instruments spread across the world, really. Fantastic. Speaking of instruments, though, you mentioned that you maintain the 20-meter telescope on the site. Can you tell us a little bit about what the 20-meter telescope's history is, its capabilities, and uh, perhaps how people can use it? The 20-meter telescope was built here in Green Bank in 1994 by the U.S. Naval Observatory, and its mission from the beginning was to measure the wobble of the Earth on its axis. So the Earth spins around, that what's, that's what makes a day, its pole points to the North Celestial Pole. Right now, that's very near Polaris, but that changes over tens of thousands of years. So that's another mo movement of the Earth on its axis. But then it also wobbles a little bit. And if we want things like the GPS system to work, understanding how we can navigate ships, planes, boats all across the world, then we need to understand that wobble. So that was originally what the 20 meter did by looking at these things called quasars with other telescopes around the world. But then the Navy moved away from this project in Green Bank in the early 2000s and gave the instrument to us. Right now, we use it primarily for education. So it's attached to a system called Skynet, not the scary Skynet from the Terminator. Uh, but this Skynet is run by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill that allows people from around the country and around the world to go in and remotely control the 20-meter as part of educational curricula across the country and across the world. So it's the only radio telescope currently part of that system. So if you are at a university and you are at an 
in, in an intro astronomy course, you probably have access to optical telescopes, but you might not have access to a radio telescope. This telescope sort of fills that void and allows people to measure things like neutral hydrogen across the Milky Way, tracing the revolution of the Milky Way, um, its motion around the galactic center. You can look at things like pulsars, even searching for new pulsars and new fast radio bursts. So it's it's pretty flexible. Right now, the frequency range that we are limited to is between about 1 and 2 gigahertz. So that covers neutral hydrogen, OH, which can be used as a molecular gas tracer. And you can do some astrochemistry work with that. And in fact, the 20 meter was used to detect these dark molecular gas reservoirs on the very far outskirts of the Milky Way, leading us to believe that there might actually be a lot more molecular gas in the galaxy than we previously thought, because the classical tracer for bulk molecular gas was is carbon monoxide, CO. But that's not excited in many regions of the galaxy, whereas OH is. So by tracing OH, you can see actually a lot more molecular gas in the galaxy, and it gives you a fuller picture of what our home, our galactic home might look like. Awesome. And and I take it to, to understand that you recently embarked on a, a somewhat crazy adventure in order to increase the longevity of this telescope and, and keep it running. You want to tell us a, just a little bit about what you and your colleagues uh, just got back from a, a, a short while ago? Yeah, it, this is sort of a bizarre trip, but it was it was awesome. So I said that the 20 meter here in Greenbank was built in 1994, but that was not the only 20 meter telescope built in 1994. There was another one built in Svalbard, Norway. Svalbard is a set of islands about halfway between mainland Norway and the North Pole. And a 20-meter telescope was built up there to do this same sort of measurement of the Earth's wobble on its axis. This science is called geodesy. And in fact, there was another one in Hawaii on Kauai as well that all worked in tandem together. This 20-meter in Svalbard was set to be decommissioned, and they built two smaller, newer telescopes to fill the void of the science that it was doing. But I found out two years ago that they were going to demolish this telescope, and I just reached out and asked, hey, could we have all your spare parts? Could we come there and strip down anything that we can use? And amazingly, they said, yeah. So they just gave us everything that we wanted. Uh, we sent a delegation of five folks from Green Bank there uh, August 14th through August 31st or so, the last observation that this telescope made was on August 14th, and it was set to be torn down on September 4th. Yeah, we basically only had that two and a half weeks that we could go there. So we stripped off things like motors, gearboxes, extra panels from the dish, basically anything that we could see possibly going wrong on our system, we took spare parts. And so we filled up an eight by 20 foot shipping container. And as of Today, it is sitting in Tromso waiting to come across the ocean. So we expect to have it here in Green Bank by, oh, mid-November, maybe 2023. Fantastic. So I mean, you've clearly put in a lot of effort to making this uh, an operable telescope, a great telescope to use. How exactly do people find uh, an application to use it? Uh, who do they contact? They, you, a website, Skynet, what, what are we looking at? Yeah, so you can contact myself. Uh, Will Armentrout at the Green Bank Observatory. If you are interested in incorporating this into academic curricula, there are two ways to do that. One, you can work through the Skynet system directly, and Dan Reichardt at UNC is the contact person for that. But you can also work directly through Green Bank and buy credits for the telescope. So you can have your own curriculum and make, make your own class trips out here to use it. We are pretty open in our user base, basically any educational institution, whether that's a star club, uh, an astronomy club, or a, a formal astronomy course at a university, can apply for credits on the telescope, and they are um, very reasonably priced. Yeah. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time. Uh, it was great having you here, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much, Brett. Finally, I want to highlight that the observatory is just an amazing place to visit as a tourist. They have a fantastic visitor center with a fully fleshed out science museum that not only provides uh, exhibits on the history of the observatory, but also some excellent interactive displays on both the principles of radio astronomy, but also on the science done at the observatory. As well, the observatory offers guided tours of the site, covering the history of the site and many of the telescopes there. 
Visitors are also welcome to freely explore the grounds themselves, walking right up to most all of the telescopes or hiking on many of the numerous trails. The hours do vary seasonally, and we'll have a link to the visitors' information in our show notes and on the website. It really is a magical place to visit. Alrighty, folks, time to take a look at the percolator and see what's bubbling back up to the surface this month. Oh, would you look at that? We have a paper here by Ball et al., Detection of Methyl Alcohol in Sagittarius, published December of 1970 in the Astrophysical Journal, volume 162, page L203. Methyl alcohol, CH3OH, also called methanol or wood alcohol, is the simplest alcohol molecule. It brings a new level of complexity to molecular astronomy, for it is a molecule that exhibits a torsional motion called hindered internal rotation, a type of motion that has so far defied exact analysis by spectroscopists. The authors used the NRIO 140-foot telescope, located right here in Green Bank, to observe two regions in the galactic center, Sagittarius A and Sagittarius B2 searching for the 834 MHz K-type doubling line of methanol. They note with some apparent surprise that even though the continuum temperatures in these sources are greater than 100 Kelvin, the line was seen in emission rather than absorption. Their figure one shows a clear detection of the line in each source, with good signal-to-noise ratios. They highlight that the spectra are processed with the NRAO 384-channel 1-bit digital autocorrelator, although they split the channels across two orthogonal polarizations, which were then averaged to increase effective integration time. They go on to highlight the challenges with claiming a single line detection of a molecule, especially as this line has no characteristic hyperfine splitting that makes it distinct. They then outline the lengths they went through to identify and dismiss the possibility of alternate identifications. One particular challenge was that there remained a large uncertainty in the Doppler shift to apply to the observed frequencies. Prior observations of OH in these sources showed signals ranging from negative 100 to plus 200 kilometers per second. So they endeavored to search the entire range, although this corresponded to only 833.9 to 834.7 megahertz at these frequencies. Very little literature data was available at this point, with the primary resource being the Microwave Spectral Tables, published as a book a few years prior by NIST. Using both the directly catalogued frequencies and those they computed for K-type doubling transitions of other molecules, they considered and dismissed all other candidates. They themselves state, By its nature, such a search cannot be completely conclusive. But because the 834.3 MHz line of methyl alcohol fits the astronomical observation so well, and because we can find no other line that does, we consider the identification to be established beyond reasonable doubt. The paper then goes on to describe the complexity of the methanol rotational spectrum, a spectrum which remains to this day extremely challenging to fully characterize. They note that prior to this work, the line they observed astronomically was only known by extrapolation from laboratory measurements. Thus, after observing their line in Sagittarius, they set out to measure it in the laboratory as well. They used a stark modulation resonance cavity microwave spectrometer to perform the measurement, and even used the exact amplifiers and mixers in their detectors that were used to make the astronomical measurements. NRIO agreed to loan them the equipment from the telescope receiver to enable the spectroscopy. Despite the advanced techniques, the line was apparently challenging to detect, although they did in the end manage a measurement and determine the frequency, a frequency that was in excellent agreement with the astronomical observations. To conclude, the authors compare their detection to that of other molecules seen in this source, namely OH, CO, NH3, and H2CO. While the methanol line was too weak to be mapped, the close coincidence in the Doppler velocities of the methanol and formaldehyde lines led the authors to suggest that the molecules likely originated from the same molecular cloud. Like formaldehyde before it, the detection of methanol made waves in the popular news media of the day. In the November 10th 
1970 issue of the Boston Globe, Victor McElney writes that, Methyl alcohol is better known as wood alcohol, or torpedo juice, the substance in illegal liquor which temporarily or permanently blinded venturesome youths during prohibition. According to Carl Gottlieb, the search for methyl alcohol, the simplest of the alcohols, was triggered by the discovery of formaldehyde, the simplest of the compounds known as aldehyde. It's still a big mystery how the chemicals are formed or how they survive bombardment by large amounts of ultraviolet radiation and cosmic rays charging through interstellar space. Despite these mysteries, the discoveries fascinated the minds of the public and indeed led famed science fiction author Isaac Asimov to compose a multi-page spread which found its ways to the covers of newspapers worldwide. In it, he writes, Astronomers, thinking it unlikely that more than two atoms could come together in one place and stick there, were surprised when radio wave prints of more than two atom molecules were discovered. Then came the real shocker, the molecule of methyl alcohol, made up of six atoms. Astonished astronomers found that they had a new science on their hands, astrochemistry, the chemistry of the thin matter of outer space. What's more, the molecules they were detecting might also be on the high road to life. Did that mean, then, if we looked harder and in more detail, we might find such important compounds as amino acids, the building blocks of protein? Well, not yet, but as we've already heard today, we're closer now than we've ever been before. Taking a look at the chalkboard, there's one major event on the horizon. Registration and abstract submission is also now open for the 2024 Laboratory Astrophysics Workshop organized by Andrew Turner and colleagues. It will be held February 19th to the 24th at the Sheraton Coconut Beach Resort in Kauai, Hawaii. A list of invited speakers is available on their website. Late registration begins November 1st. We'll have a link to the conference webpage on our website and in the show notes. The Astrochemistry Subdivision of the American Chemical Society is restarting their Astrochemonar webinar series. Their next speaker will be Avine Bandishuk, scheduled tentatively for November. Check out their website for more information, including specific dates and registration information when it becomes available. There's a link to the Astrochemonar series on our website and in the show notes. And that's it for this month's Astrochem Coffee, a service of astrochemistry discussions. Once again, you can find links to all the papers and meetings from today's episodes on our website, coffee.astrochem.net. Have ideas for the grab and go or the double shot? General thoughts or comments? Get in touch with us at coffee at astrochem.net. Special thanks today to the staff at the Green Bank Observatory. Stay safe and keep your head in the molecular clouds. We're nestled in the Mahongan. First, we're nestled in the Man... Monongahela. Monongahela.